Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, how the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency can achieve its diversity goals. But first, joining us today is Betsy Soren Jones, uh, Fortress Information Security's Chief Operating Officer, uh, to discuss. Uh, among other things, the Biden administration's new guidelines to improve national industrial cybersecurity for both hardware uh, and software is something that we have uh, been anticipating for some time. Betsy, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. An absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell Leonardo DRS, sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Betsy, you and uh, others across the cyber ecosystem have been calling for tougher uh, standards, uh, ultimately, for both software uh, as well uh, as hardware and we can get into the details in a minute. Uh, But the administration, uh, as first reported by the Washington Post, is releasing uh, its new standards. Again, I mean, this is an iceberg that we've seen approaching us at at, at blistering speed. Um, From your standpoint, what are the the takeaways here? And what is it that we should be trying to achieve both uh, for industry, uh, for government, and indeed, ultimately, for all of us? So I think we need to take a little bit of a a step back and look at the overall ecosystem within specifically critical infrastructure and what's happened over the last couple of years. So first and foremost, we've seen more and more incidences that have occurred in cyberspace. And really the incidences are occurring obviously within different pieces of software. We saw Log4j, we saw SolarWinds, um, we we saw the Colonial Pipeline attack. Um, and then also from a hardware perspective, we have found, you know, different chips that are a little concerning to us that are really, you know, put into places within the infrastructure that, you know, keep the lights on and the gas flowing. And so when we look at and we digest those different incidences, everybody rushes to, well, what is the answer? How do we prevent it from happening? And I think that this question has always been much bigger than just critical infrastructure. And so I really applaud the White House today in really setting these standards and pushing them out because what it's going to do for all of us, whether it be critical infrastructure or any other industry, is really get a consistent set of standards that can be used across many different industries. And the reason that I think that the consistency piece is very important is you have to go back and you have to look at the corporate structures that are at play here. Typically uh, within critical infrastructure, you don't just have a single type of business, meaning i.e. a electric company or just a gas company. You have many, many big players that play in both fields. And so living in a situation where you have one set of guidelines that is specific for the electric industry and in the very same company, have a different set of working standards for gas is almost impossible to implement. So getting a set of of consistent guidelines across only helps us really get to that safe and, and productive place that we all need to be and get to the work. And now that we know what the work is, we can actually get the shovels going and get those protections put in place and really work with our manufacturing community to make sure that those um, different standards are built into the products and not just bolted on. So I'm I'm really, really excited today. 
devil uh, is in the details. Are you are you comfortable? Uh, Ray, I mean, the administration, I think, has worked hard and been drawing a lot of input. I know that you guys have been among those um, who have given their input into this process. Are you satisfied with with where we've ended up? Because I mean, ultimately, right, almost in in the cyber universe, almost as soon as you put something in place, it starts to age, if 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 you will. Um, are are we are 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 there any um, other things that we should be considering at this point, even as as this great stuff comes uh, comes into effect. If there's anything that we've learned about cyber, it has to be an iterative process. So it wouldn't have mattered where we started. The journey is always going to have to mature. So I think we were getting to a point where we were trying to let perfection get in the way of getting something out the door. And so what I think that this is really signaling to all of us is we're starting. So that iceberg is here, we are starting. And I really think that the question is going to become, what is the maintenance cycle for all of these standards? And how do we take the learnings and how do we take the events that are inevitably gonna happen over you know, the next year, two years, three years, and start to iterate on top of these standards. So, you know, I don't think that there were any big fatal flaws that were missing from this right. first version, but getting this first version out was critically important. Um, and, and we've heard that uh, from the National Cyber Director, uh, Chris Inglis, uh, who has very much taken that approach, right? Uh, that um, we've got to get moving on this. And we've heard that from Ann Newberger, as well as from Jen Easterly, who've been soliciting uh, in, input from everybody. Um, one of the things uh, that you uh, and your team have been talking about, I think almost longer than any other uh, entity, and I'm not just saying that because you, you guys sponsor this program, is the importance of the bills of origin and materials. Uh, the uh, on the software side, right? The S bomb, as well as on the hardware side, on on the H bomb uh, side of things. Let's start with um, cyber vulnerabilities because this isn't as much about the process as the outcome, right? Now, what's the task at hand for everybody? Because really, Betsy, this is a you know monumental task. Even if you break the yeah. elephant up into individual bites. It, it, it really is. And I think um, what we've learned from, from our customers is that it really is about identifying the vulnerabilities. It's the why. Why are we actually pulling together these SBOMs? What we're looking for is unknown vulnerabilities that we need to do something with. And when you start to ask your questions about vulnerability management, there's, there's really two ways to look at it. The first is the software provider's ability to even give us a patch especially if it's coming from open source, how do you do that? So that's a, it's a question that many of the software manufacturers are gonna have to start to answer for is what do they do with open source information where something was identified, how do we close those gaps? The second is once you understand that there's a gap and maybe it can't necessarily be remediated, what do you do when it's installed in your environment and how do you put extra protections in place? And so what we've heard from the vendor community is that they're a little bit um, sheepish about turning over that information. But what I would say to them is that not all of the onus is going to be on them to fix everything. And I think that that is the uniqueness of the situation where it is not lost on the purchasers or the folks that are, are really installing these different pieces of, of software, that there may be flaws. 
And we're going to have to deal with those flaws, but understanding where they are gives them a better roadmap of what they need to do in their own environments to really be tracking and watching all of the um, different information transmissions so they can figure out if that vulnerability really is something that um, is of concern. So I think, again, we're all going to learn. Vendors need to not necessarily be so scared to turn the information over because at some point the software you know, users really need that roadmap in order to close off those vulnerabilities within their own environment, add a, add a firewall, add extra protections, et cetera. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the um, proverbial wall and you know, cause a software provider to, to lose a sale. Um, let me take you to hardware, right? Um, because as big as the challenge is on software, software is at least re-engineerable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is rewritable. Um, we now have in some of our most classified systems, uh, Chinese chips from companies that we consider to be problematic in part because right further down in the ecosystem, somebody was using these chips, putting them into a sub, sub, sub product. Uh, and then it goes, you know, but ultimately they were the parts numbers of leading contractors. That's another issue that uh, your folks uh, have been talking about for a very long period of time and has been an interest of mine for a very long period of time, as people know. Um, how do we approach the H-bomb part of this? Because it is not an easy thing to have not, not just the visibility, Betsy, but actually getting in there and actually fixing things. How do we... How do we do this part of it? Yeah, so I would say the first and foremost, what we need to do is understand what that device does in our ecosystem and start to prioritize it. So, you know, while that chip may be installed in six, 10, 15 different devices within our ecosystem, which ones of those, you know, devices are really controlling the lights to stay on? And that's where we have to start. So the first part is understanding your extent of condition and how many of these types of devices have you purchased? Where are they sitting in your environment? And where does it make the most sense just from an operations perspective, meaning like how do you keep, in my case, the grid going? Um, you know, wh what do we rip and replace first, second, third? And then the other part of it is understanding that extent of condition is also going to help inform the manufacturing community in terms of how much supply are we going to need? Because I think that that is really the other question of the day. We're still coming out of the pandemic. We're still coming out of having um, material availability issues just period globally. That was exasperated by the Russian conflict. Now to throw this on top of it, we're really gonna you know, stretch the, the supply chains pretty deeply and we have to be smart about this. Um, and what does smart about it, right? What's the key to being smart about this? There's really two, yeah, really two things. Prioritization of the device. If these are devices that control critical systems, they have to go first. Understanding how many, and then also pairing it with um, seasonality. So, you know, again, for us in the, the utility space, you know, trying to rip and replace those devices right in the middle of hurricane season, probably not a great idea. So, you know, we also have to toggle the work in, into the, the time when it makes the most sense, or do we do it during hurricane season when we know that we have devices that are gonna go out because they've been damaged by storms? Having that intelligence ahead of time is gonna be pretty critical. 
Let me uh, ask you uh, a quick question uh, on diversity, and we're going to hear from JC uh, in a minute talking a little bit about diversity and, and, and goals. And before Chris Inglis uh, became National Cyber Director, he was kind enough to join us uh, on a regular basis, and diversity was one of the issues that he uh, spoke to us about. Um, you're a woman in an industry that's overwhelmingly dominated, uh, not just by men, but by white men and increasingly older white men. Um, you know, and we heard from Andrea a couple of weeks ago how often she's, you know, during her successful career is really often the only woman in the room. Um, you've also sought to attract um, kids into this industry right through cyber camp uh, to, to try to show people what a great and rewarding and, and uh, important uh, career, fulfilling career this can be. What's the right way to, to hit diversity goals from your standpoint? Because there's a lot of debate about, well, you know, you're just ticking boxes. You're not really interested in improving capability. This is all about capability. Somehow divorcing that actually that breadth of diversity and experience you're bringing in is actually core to your ability to deliver the mission. It's actually not an impediment to delivering the mission. No, I, so I will say that I have, um, I have two daughters. I have one that's in high school and one that's in middle school. And uh, I have learned so much from them of how to address this problem. I think that we are being incredibly short-sighted when we say that we are looking at, you know, trying to build this pipeline at the collegiate level or even at the high school level. It has to happen so much earlier. And I say that um, we've, we are huge proponents of the Girl Scout organization. I've been a troop leader for now for eight years, uh, been on the board, have launched about 50 different STEM related curriculums for Girl Scouts. And based on their studies, it clearly shows that if you do not, for girls, get them engaged in a STEM related field by the age of nine, nine, you will not get them to matriculate through college. They have to be excited about these fields in order to take the right classes in high school that will then turn into the right classes that when they go to file their applications for college to major in a, you know, in a major that would lead them to a cyber degree. So I actually think that if we are looking to address this problem, it has to happen a lot sooner. I also think that it is the onus on this problem really is for those that of the few of us that are um, women and minorities in the field to also give back probably more than others because they can't be what they can't see. And so there, it is a difference when you have a professional woman walking in, holding a Girl Scout class with other girls, they can see it, they understand it, they can live it. Hey, it's a mom, she can do this. If she can do this, then I can do this. So I, I would say that for me personally, um, I look at this situation as, as one that's mission critical, and two, if we're going to solve it, it probably has to be done at a lot lower levels than, than many of us were thinking. Betsy, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure uh, having you uh, on the program and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. And a word from our sponsors, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage, and we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And joining us now is J.C. Vega, a retired United States Army colonel uh, who was the co-founder of the Army Cyber Institute. He started his life in the United States Army as an aviator uh, before becoming a cyber guru and has amassed a distinguished 
career uh, in industry, uh, including serving as a chief information security officer uh, and has the scars to prove it. Uh, he is now a consultant and advisor uh, and remains uh, a guru. Uh, JC, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks a lot for joining us. Great to be with you, Vago, and your audience. Uh, an, an absolute uh, pleasure. Um, we, we heard from Betsy just, just a moment ago, and I just want to quickly uh, start off. Right administration has its new standards out. Uh, we've been expecting this. Uh, just your sort of gut sense on whether or not the administration's uh, on, the, on the right track in, in what they're doing in order to be able to improve the nation's cyber defenses. You know, there's we talk about all the technical things that have to take place, and, and they're on the right path, identifying uh, how we're going to implement SBOM, what are the incentives, or what are the expectations from industry regarding technology. Uh, but in parallel with that, CISA sent a, uh, published a report just yesterday regarding uh, the strategy that they have. And one of the things that they take into account is the culture and the people. So uh, we're hitting this on all fronts and we have to because this is a people technology and process and organizational problem. This is not just a technology problem. And, and you may have heard my opinions on, on technology and, and training and such, but you can't just look at one facet of this problem because all of them are impacted. Um, and uh, indeed, you've, you've joined us to talk about the cultural aspect uh, as well as the technology aspect and indeed how we train uh, a new generation uh, in the workforce, right? I mean, training the way we've been training uh, is, has, is not working and we always end up uh, behind. And, and one of the things you were talking about and you were kind enough to, uh, to agree to join us uh, to talk about CISA's uh, diversity goals. What, what's the right way to do this, uh, uh, JC? You know, we heard from Betsy about, you know, if you want to try to get more women, you've got to do this much, much earlier uh, in the process, right? You can't wait till high school. And this is a lot like the hard sciences, right? If you're getting to people in high school, you might have missed that uh, boat. You've got to do it when they're really, really young. From your standpoint, what are we not getting right? Because there is a lot of focus on diversity. And more importantly, what do we have to do to get it right because just about everybody has concluded um, that that diversity is actually going to be key to us uh, maintaining our lead, right? This isn't an impediment as some people want to try to portray it. It's actually an enabler. You, you know, you, you brought up a great point, but, you know, true, true to form, I'm going to come up with a contrarian opinion here. And hopefully it'll spark a conversation well beyond the, this podcast. So I'll start with this. The strategies for diversity, equity, and inclusion have failed spectacularly. And while we're trying to promote this equal opportunity, the tools that we use are really used to prevent us and protect us from lawsuits, from liability. And what are those tools? Diversity training. We've all been through, most of us who are part of large organizations or medium large or to large organizations have been through some sort of diversity training. So we can reduce bias. We've seen hiring tests and performance ratings uh, using recruitment and promotion so that there's some fairness in that. We've also seen grievance systems that give employees a way to challenge when they're wrong. Well, I would say all of those are counterproductive. And I'm basing that uh, on experience 
and talking to people about some of the challenges we have. And there's research that supports that. And, and so what are, from your standpoint, right, where is this misfiring, right? So it's people who obviously want to have a positive outcome, right? Nobody generally starts off by saying, hey, I want to screw this up more. So it's clear that there is a positive intent. How is it all going wrong and giving us the, the wrong outcome from your perspective? So, so one of the things is when we talk about bias, we talk about the idea of, you know, when, when we're training, we're going to highlight on all these biases that we have. The bias is real. We all have some type of prejudgment. To some, it goes to a bias, to a prejudice, but all of us have some experience that we bring to this. But the idea of we can train our way out of that, it doesn't stick. And in fact, it often is counterproductive, is that it highlights that you're forcing me to believe that we need to have this uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we translate that as at the expense of who? At the expense of what? And the message that sticks is that last part, not the first part on why we need this diversity, equity, and inclusion. So from your perspective, um, if CISA and the nation or any of the military services or the department or any successful organization, what's the key to getting to right? So, so the key really is engagement. As your previous speaker talked about, reaching the children when they're, when they're younger, if you want them. But it's more than that. It's engagement of the people that you have now. If the people that are going to be successful are your protégés. So part of that is how are you engaging them? Are you mentoring a diverse group? Because having that contact, having that interaction with those individuals that you're trying to promote, that you're trying to encourage, the action of you engaging them breaks down that bias. And you want them to succeed because you have skin in the game. You have, you're vested in this. This goes uh, away from just mentoring, but you actually become a sponsor. You become an enabler. And we all want our projects to succeed. In this case, it's the people that we're mentoring. It's the people that we're engaging. We want them to succeed. So that, that's one aspect of it there. And, and what, are, what are the other elements of this, right? I mean, ultimately, um, every organization, right, moves to figure out how to measure everything, right? I mean, the whole Deming manner, right? If you can't measure it, it, it doesn't happen. So we try to use measurement metrics. Um, you know, we say that we want to mentor people. But there are some people who do that, right? I mean, you have to make time. Uh, you know, to free time in your schedule to spend time with folks uh, who matter to you. I mean, that that's family, but also it's people in the organization that you want to properly mentor. What are the other subtle elements of this, JC, you know, as, as leaders, whether you're in government or in industry, that you also need to consider um, if, if you're, um, you know, grow the kind of talent that we need and bring aboard the kind of people uh, that we need? And I know that this, you know, and then I, I've got a training question as well uh, to, to see if we can actually get bias out of some of the ways that we, we train and test people, but that's a separate question. 
Sure. So, so part of it, it, we have seen some success on diversity task forces. And these aren't compulsory. These are people who want to volunteer, who want to make a difference. Get the people who are willing to change and willing to uh, put the effort in. And you'll find that they're more vested in, in the challenge that they have and the solutions. So part of that is, for instance, give the problem to the task force. You don't have enough X, Y, or Z. How are they going to figure out how to do that? Uh, it, you'll find that it's not going to be through diversity training. It's not going to be through hiring tests. And it's not going to be through a grievance system. They might come up with innovative ways to recruit in a way, innovative ways to uh, identify career paths or eliminate roadblocks to, to careers. But they'll have ownership in that, not just for the organization, but specifically for their part of the organization, their directs, their responsibility. And what that'll do is that'll have uh, the impact of real change within the team that can grow from there. And so that's one aspect of it. The, the other thing is publish the results. Be transparent about that. It's very easy to find out the demographics of, of an organization and to anonymize, uh, if it's a large enough organization, to anonymize the data. But if you're seeing that women in your organization are getting promoted at a lower rate, are getting uh, their annual reviews, and you see consistently that there's a pattern of specific groups that are scoring lower. And that becomes an, something you're accountable for that you have to explain. Having that social accountability is very important. We've seen it in other studies. Uh, there's one study of a teacher of, in Israel who was teaching European uh, heritage or based students to African and Asian heritage based students, but they both were, were Jewish, but one was usually more poor and worse off than the other. And they found that the results of the scores reflected that, that those that were better off were getting better scores. Those that weren't were getting lower scores. They published their results and they explained to the teachers, tell us why this is. And what you saw is the teachers realized that this unconscious bias, perhaps, or conscious, that they were doing this. And they realized to make their students improve, they had to adjust their curriculum so that they all improved, so that there wasn't this inherent bias based on just ethnicity or, or heritage or social economic status. And so the idea of making people aware that this is occurring in their team in their organization, because they're the ones who are gonna to have to deal with it. They're the ones who are possibly gonna come up with the solutions. This isn't some external factor on nationally, this is what's going on. Tell me what's going on right here in my house. You know, we, we've talked about how we better tap 50% of the population in the, in the cyber career field, uh, JC, but what about underserved minority communities uh, as well, right? I mean, as, as you indicated, if you structure the test the right way, you get the outcome, right? If you're an affluent, uh, you know, white person, uh, you know, you will, if you have the same mindset and same socioeconomic background, you benefit from it. But if you're not, you actually get penalized for it, which is part of what you're saying. What do we have to do 
uh, to actually bring the kind of diversity uh, to this equation that we need to uh, so that it is representative of the nation ultimately. You know, I'm not a fan of hiring tests per se because they don't measure everything you need to know. Now, in some disciplines, it does. But in our discipline, there's so much more than just a test will resolve. So you have to look at what are the responsibilities of this job that you're going. Uh, one of the things that we have a bias for is when we know the people, when we're hiring uh, individuals that are familiar to us, we don't do the testing. But when they're not familiar to us, we do the testing. So what does... Then you got to look at who are you familiar with? Are you looking at those that are unfamiliar being the diverse crowd or are they the ones that are familiar to you? So how are you using these tests? Who are you using them on? Because one of the things that the research shows is while we use tests, we don't always use them fairly. We use them to eliminate people, not to advance people. And so Testing is, is a big thing. But I'll tell you the, the single uh, biggest factor that I would say is get engaged. If you want to hire uh, black engineers or Hispanic female cybersecurity individuals and you're the hiring person, go out and find them. Go out and take that as an action that you are going to uh, Find those individuals, interview them, recruit them, and bring them on. Don't leave that up to the HR team. The HR team is there to fill a body. You're building the team. You're building someone, and you're putting, you're the one who's sponsoring that individual. There's part of that that we say people aren't fully qualified for these things here. I can tell you, in almost every job I've had, I was never fully qualified when I started. And probably when I left, I still probably had more to learn. But that's all of us. So there's always room for us to learn. And part of that is what are we willing to teach people? Because we're not going to find the perfect candidate. JC, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us. And this is a far deeper conversation uh, and would love to uh, convene uh, other voices to sort of tease it out, because I think you know, we're, we're just scratching uh, what is uh, the tip of the iceberg uh, and, you know, and getting into the cultural issues uh, as well. Thanks so very much. It's always a pleasure having you on. Great to be with you, Vargas.